Well, we've been looking at the hallmarks of the Reformation. Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone. And today we look at the fourth one, faith alone. And we turn to Romans chapter 3, and we begin reading at verse 21. Romans 3, beginning at verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith, This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we are grateful today for the Reformation. These truths of Scripture that were, I suppose we'd say, rediscovered, the Word alone and Christ alone and grace alone and and what we look at today, faith alone. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that we can come to you today just as we are, rejoicing in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the work that he did on the cross, Uh, suffering for us, paying the price for our sins. Oh, Lord, thank you that we can stand upon that truth today. And I pray that you would teach us, that you would guide us into your truth, Lord. We believe your word is everlasting truth. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If a speaker wanted to emphasize an important point... He might say something like this, and maybe you've heard people say this, if you forget everything else I say, remember this. The Apostle Paul could have said something like this about our text for this morning, because this passage of Scripture is one of the most important sections of Scripture on the subject of salvation. 
Dr. Leon Morris says that this portion of Scripture may be possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. Martin Luther called this passage the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. In other words, if there is a section of Scripture that we must understand, it is this one. After listening to the reading of this text, uh, maybe you're thinking to yourself, how in the world am I supposed to understand this passage of Scripture? Uh, Words like righteousness and justified and redemption and propitiation and forbearance and demonstration and words like that. It's like, whoa, if I'm supposed to understand this, God help me. And that's the right attitude, isn't it? God help me. Spirit of God, make this clear to me. What is it that I need to understand? If you read these verses carefully... You will notice that the main thrust of this passage is really that of salvation by faith alone. In just 11 verses, Paul uses the word faith eight times and the word believe another time. And so when you see a word repeated over and over again, you would say to yourself, this must be important. Repetition is telling me that this is important. And so Paul wants us to understand that salvation is by faith alone, because if we do not grasp this truth, this foundational, fundamental truth, the consequences are eternal. Because we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Nothing added to what Christ has done. So Paul teaches us three things about salvation by faith. First of all, salvation by faith is essential because God's law cannot save us. In the verses just prior to our text, Paul tells us that apart from Jesus, we have no hope. There is nothing we can say to excuse our sin, and there is nothing we can do to atone for our sin. We are guilty as charged. Notice verses 19 and 20. Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So if you want to know why the law was given, it was not given that we might somehow do the best we can, try to obey the golden rule, Hope that somehow the good outweighs the bad. That is not the purpose of the law. The law was given to reveal our sin. The law was given to show us that we need a Savior, that Jesus Christ is that Savior. So we stand, apart from Jesus, as guilty as charged. Our mouths are silent. There is nothing that we can say. 
But the first two words of our text then changes everything. Because God has done something about our guilt. Notice verse 21, but now. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. And then this very familiar verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The reason why we are saved apart from the law is not because there is something wrong with the law. Let's settle that for once and for all. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 12, that the law is righteous, it is holy, and it is good. And so the problem is not with the law, the problem is with us. We have all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. Of God. And as we read that verse in our English translations, it's, it's possible to, to, to maybe miss what Paul is saying here. The word translated have sinned is, for you uh, Greek scholars, a Greek aorist tense. And it is likely Paul's way of pointing us back to Adam. When Adam sinned, he passed on to all mankind a sinful nature. And we often call this original sin. In chapter 5 of Romans and verse 12, Paul says this, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And we could say, in Adam all sinned. And so we are born sinful, we have an inherited sinful nature, and because of that, we fall short of the glory of God. And that word, fall short, is written in the present tense. And it pictures an ongoing result. Because of Adam's sin, we have been born with a sinful nature, and as a result of that, we continually fall short and always will fall short of the glory of God. And that's the battle we face, isn't it? We have a sinful flesh. Even though we know Jesus is our Savior, we still struggle with sin. And there will never come that day until Jesus comes again that we will be able to say, I've arrived. We fall short of the glory of God. So the law cannot save us because none of us can keep it. The worst of us and the best of us continually fall short. Bishop Handley Moole put it this way. He said, the harlot, the liar... The murderer are short of God's glory, but so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine, and you on the crest of the Alps. But you are as little able to touch the stars as they are. Get that picture? 
Some might be in the bottom of the mine, some might be on the top of the Alps, but who can reach the stars? <laughs> no one. And so faith in Jesus is essential. Salvation by faith is essential because God's law cannot save us. The second lesson we learn here is that salvation by faith is available because God's Son died for us. And one of the words that Paul uses to describe what it means to be saved is the word justified. After Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, he says, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. The term justified is really a legal term. It comes to us from the court of law. It is the declaration of the judge who pronounces his favorable verdict. So when it comes to salvation, it is God who declares us to be righteous by faith. God's declaration. The teaching of justification by faith then presents a question that Paul addresses in our text. Is it possible for a just God to justify sinners? Or put another way, can a righteous God declare the unrighteous, like us, to be righteous? That's Paul's claim in verse 26, because he says there that God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So how is that possible? How can God be just? And yet, justify us, we who are sinful? The only answer to that question is the cross. The cross of Jesus. We, by faith, are justified through the cross because our ransom was paid at the cross. And this is what Paul means in verse 24 when he uses the word redemption. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. What does the word redemption mean? It means to pay with a ransom. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, He said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as what? A ransom. For many. Elvina Hall, the hymn writer, put it this way, Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Jesus paid it all. And so we are justified through the cross because of the price that Jesus paid. But at the same time that we are justified through the cross... God is just through the cross because God's wrath against our sin was satisfied at the cross because it was placed on Jesus. 
This is seen in this word, and some of your translations may not have it translated this way, but the word propitiation. Verse 25, that seems like a big word, isn't it? Verse 25 says, Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood. The word propitiation, and even though it sounds dauntingly difficult, it simply means that God's wrath against sin was satisfied. At the cross, God's righteous judgment of sin was placed upon Jesus. And that's why Paul can say in verse 26 that God is just and the justifier. He justly punished our sins by placing them on Jesus. And in so doing, then, He declares us to be righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And so this whole concept of righteousness does not deal with our living, our behavior. It deals with the righteousness of Christ that is given to us as God's gift. By faith, we stand today then in the righteousness of Jesus. The word propitiation is used in the Old Testament in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. We call that the Septuagint. And interestingly enough, that word is used 29 times to describe the golden cover of the Ark of the Covenants, or what is sometimes called the mercy seat, the place where the priest would, would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement to satisfy God's wrath on sin. R. Kent Hughes puts it this way. He says, The ark contained the law of the Ten Commandments. And the ceremony portrayed the fact that a broken law stood between a holy God and mankind. But through the shedding of blood, this place of judgment became the place of reconciliation. In Christ's death, the demands of God for justice against a sinful race are fully met, leaving Him free to be merciful to those who formerly merited only judgment. Then he concludes with this statement that Christ is our mercy seat. Jesus is our mercy seat. Because His blood was shed for us. The price was paid for us. It is a, salvation is available to us today because of what Jesus did for us. There is one difference, however, between what the priests did in the Old Testament and what Jesus did. What the priests did was hidden from view. He went into the Holy of Holies once a year 
on the Day of Atonement. And no one else went there with him, just the high priest. But Paul says what Jesus did on the cross was a public demonstration of God's righteousness. Verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. Jesus died in full view of the world. He suffered there on that hill outside of Jerusalem. And that was a public demonstration of God's justice upon sin. And His ability to declare us righteous then because of what Jesus did for us. Isaiah 53 puts it this way. Surely our griefs He Himself bore. And our sorrows He carried, yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. That's what Lent is about. That's what we celebrate during this time of the year. What Jesus Christ did to set us free. The terrible price he paid. The cost of laying down His life and suffering there on the cross. That's why we can be declared righteous in God's sight. Because our sin was judged at the cross. The third point that Paul makes in this passage is that salvation by faith is wonderful because God's grace transforms us. If you're wondering what would move God to save us from our sins, Paul tells us very clearly that it is His grace. Verse 24, being justified as a gift by His grace. The word translated gift here, or maybe translated freely in your translation, That word in John 15, verse 25, is translated with as the phrase, without a cause. In other words, there is nothing in us that caused God to save us. There's nothing about us that God would say, these people are so marvelous. They are so... Wonderful. I'll do anything to get them on my team. Oh no, there's nothing in us that would move God to give His Son for us. It was in Him. Without a cause. And when you understand that salvation is all because of His grace, it changes you. And one of the ways it changes you is that you boast in Jesus instead of boasting in yourself. Isn't that true? What does Paul say in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? For by grace you've been saved through faith. 
that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest what? Any man should boast. Galatians 6.14, Paul says that God forbid that I should glory. God forbid that I should boast in anything except what? The cross of Jesus. That's how Paul concludes this, this, this text. Verse 27, he says, where then is boasting? <laughs> where is boasting? Can any of us boast about anything we've done to save ourselves? There's no boasting whatsoever. Because God has done the work. Jesus has paid the price. How can we boast about that? Where then is boasting? Paul says it's excluded. Faith alone is what saves us because Jesus has done it all. And even faith itself is a gift of God, is it not? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Around Christmas time, I heard a sermon of a man. He was preaching on the wise men and talking about the various gifts that were brought to Jesus. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. And he said each of these gifts symbolizes something. And I forget which one of them, but he said one of them symbolizes faith. And his point was that we bring our faith to Jesus as a gift. I thought there's something wrong here. <laughs> it's not my faith that I bring to Jesus as a gift. But God gives faith to me as a gift, doesn't He? Isn't it the other way around? Faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of Christ. So God, through His Word gives us faith to believe His promise. It's not something that we drum up in ourselves and we present this to God and then God says, well, I guess I better save Him then. He, you know, he came to me in faith. We come to Him with nothing. And God is the one who saves us. In 1914, before the use of insulin injections, Corey Ten Boom's aunt was diagnosed with diabetes. And she knew that she didn't have long to live, and yet within a few days after learning this, she went right back to working in her God-honoring causes. And several months later, it became clear that her end was near. And so the family gathered at the aunt's bedside, and Corey's father broke the news. And then he said, her name was Jans, he says, Jans, some must go to their father empty-handed, but you will run to him with hands full, he said. And Corey's aunt said this, that all her good deeds were like little tricks and trinkets. And then she prayed this prayer. Dear Jesus, I thank you that we must come with empty hands. I thank you that you have done all, all on the cross. 
that all we need in life or death is to be sure of this. What does the hymn writer say? Nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to what? The cross I cling. There's nothing we can bring. Are we going to bring our righteous deeds to Him? What does the Bible say about our righteous deeds? Filthy rags. You can bring filthy rags and present them to God and say, God, here's what I've done for you. It's based on what He's done for us, not what we've done for Him. Jesus paid it all. All to Him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but He washed it white as snow. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, we are reminded of that great sacrifice, aren't we? The price He paid, the suffering He endured. All glory, all praise to Him and to Him alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for what You've done. It is Your work on that cross that saves us, Jesus. We have nothing to boast about. If we're going to boast, we are to boast in You, Lord, in what You've done for us. Thank You for the blood that You shed for us. Thank You for the price that You paid for us. We rejoice, O God, in Your goodness. And Lord, I pray if there's someone here this morning that has never grasped this truth of faith alone, Lord, draw them to Yourself and may they come empty-handed, recognizing there's nothing to offer, nothing in our hands we bring, but simply to the cross we cling. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.